Hey, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hey everyone. Acquisition, entrepreneurship, micro PE, search funds, you know, all this stuff has become hot over the past couple of years. We've had more than a few guests come on the show who've talked about this and have written books or doing this with their own life, their own entrepreneurial journey. Today's guest has been talking about the, the value of this since 2009. He's been out in the wilderness except his wilderness is pretty nice. Dubai, Mallorca, you know, Monaco, he's doing quite well. What is so interesting is he has a process and a focus around acquiring companies that's about creating wins for everyone involved in the negotiation, about looking at the big picture. Yes, he is sort of the godfather of the no money down acquisition concept, but I think many of the Johnny-come-latelys in the space have corrupted that message. In having read his book and now talking with him, I think we're going to get a very different concept than you may see from some of the people who are shouting to the, oh, you can get a company, no money down, ah, be rich, da-da. I'm... Today's guest, I think, will get a good chance to understand the differences and the nuances and sort of the work that has to occur to create this type of environment. I'm really just excited to learn his thought process and also how he looks to invest in the world. It's pretty interesting in reading about today's guest, looking at his Harbor Club, and then looking at his own personal stuff. He has created a very unique process and the group that he has developed and the course and everything is very active in sharing new ideas and what's possible out there. I'm actually looking at it. So it should be, it will be really great to have our guest on today and just learn more about what goes on. All right. So without much further ado, please let's welcome Jeremy Harbor of the Harbor Club. Hey, Jeremy. Thank you so much for coming here on the show. I've been receiving your newsletter for a couple of years now, and I've learned so much. And I'm really excited to have you on because you've helped me think so much about so many cool things that I hope we get a chance to go into. But thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. Anywhere you turn right now in sort of the entrepreneurial space. People are really hot to trot around acquisition entrepreneurship. And I know there's a gazillion frameworks and terms we can kind of talk about, but there's so many people who have been jumping on it in the past, less than the past two years. And yet you've been doing this since way back 2009 before really kind of taking in your thought process about all this, you know, this craziness in the space. Where, you know, can we actually just talk about like, how do you see where you are in your own entrepreneurial journey as an entrepreneur now? Where do you see yourself? 
Um, yeah, it's interesting. So I, I'm kind of at a, a, a level right now where I'm, I'm shifting into solving some of the really big problems. So I think, you know, 20 years ago, I bought my first company. 11 years ago, I started the Harbour Club community, which mm-hmm. uh, is the stuff that you receive all those newsletters. Yeah. I'd love to read what's in those newsletters, by the way. I've never written one of them. So it'd be interesting to see what... Uh, <laughs> I love content writers. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I, I did sort of the first deal 20 years ago, the community 10 years ago. And now I feel I've reached a, a kind of level where I can say no to a lot more stuff and I can I can focus on the things I think are going to have a, a really big impact. I'm not talking about kind of fluffy nonsense stuff, you know, impact in my life and impact in, yeah. in the world that we live in. And I think empowering uh, entrepreneurs to create wealth is the, is the, you know, the work, you know, God's work almost because entrepreneurs are the change agents in society. They're the ones that go out and fix stuff. And if you, if you look around at all the things that, upset you whatever that is you know if you're if it's climate change or homelessness or cancer or whatever whatever it is in the world that you want to fix i think entrepreneurs have the solution to it entrepreneurs so often just get bogged down you know for 30 years in a business they can't escape from and they never really create any wealth and i think if we can unlock value for entrepreneurs then i think they will go on and solve some of the biggest problems in the world we you know we need more elon musks uh we need more people that you know uh make a make make their money and then apply that incredible knowledge and skill set into into solving bigger problems I fully agree. And I kind of feel like, you know, this is such a great space because I remember starting my, you know, my first businesses in the early nineties, $5,000 for a really crappy computer, you know, Mm. let alone all the other infrastructure. Yeah. I just always go back to that. I was like, wow, I had four employees and it was like, I almost had to like sell a limb just from the technology. (laughs) And the first, first, and the first thing you always got was your letterhead. Who starts a business with letterhead nowadays? <laughs> and sadly, that is so correct. Like, what do you mean your business card? It was like, oh god. You kind of also said early, like you're now starting to think more about the bigger issues. What are some of the ones yeah. that you are really looking at now for your business, yeah, so look, for so your efforts? Well, so the, big, the biggest thing right now for me is this disconnection between global capital and small business. So small yes. business is the engine of every economy. Um, in a mature economy like uh, you know where you are in Spain or America or UK or anywhere like that, 50% of the economy comes from small business. 90% of the private sector workers work in small business, yet they get the shitty end of the stick when it comes to tax, when it comes to banking, and when it comes to finance. In fact, if you look at global finance, I mean, everybody talks about, you know, we need to tax billionaires more. Actually, we don't. The money is all sitting in institutions. The the top 500 institutions control 93 trillion dollars of capital. This is things like endowment funds, and the Harvard Endowment is a big one, sovereign wealth funds, charity, all these guys. They've got $93 trillion. They pride themselves on diversification. And they go to conferences where they talk about how well diversified they are. And you can look at the pie chart and all the gazillion asset classes they're in. But the asset classes are all basically, apart from real estate, they're all basically derivatives of things. They're not real... They're not in the real economy. They're fabricated products that have been created by banks and financial institutions for them to invest in. And in fact, the most alarming thing is that from that $93 trillion, those institutions have a larger allocation to Bitcoin than they do to small business. And small business is half of economic output and 90% of the people that you will meet are working in those small businesses. And that just astonishes me. That's a massive financial disconnect because effectively, 
you've got all this money sitting in these completely electronic products, and then you've got a real economy where everybody lives and works. And if you can reconnect those two, if you could parachute even a 10% asset allocation to what is 50% of economic output, this would have a transformative effect on those entrepreneurs. It would literally democratize wealth from these huge uh, institutions into every town, city, village, hamlet around the world, because that's where entrepreneurs are. And then those entrepreneurs can go on and solve some of the bigger problems that we face. So uh, yeah, that's kind of what I mean. So you're focusing on how to get more attention on the global, of global finance. Yeah, so we've created a structure called agglomeration, which is effectively, it's a a, um, kind of trademarked process that we've created that is a governance structure that allows lots of small companies to effectively share a common publicly listed holding company. And and we believe this solves the three key problems that these institutional investors have in participating in the small business arena. And those three problems, are they're too risky, they go bust too much, they lack scale, so they can't deploy enough capital into them, and they lack liquidity. They can't invest and divest easily. If you invest in an entrepreneurial business, you're stuck there for for decades. And so by creating a portfolio of small businesses under a common public listed holding company, you now have a portfolio approach, so it reduces risk. You have scale because you're now a massive multinational public company, and you have liquidity. They can buy and sell their shares on a daily basis. I do find it very interesting because it is confusing coming in, looking to acquire or put more capital into the space. Do you become a search funder? Do you become, you know, what is it? AngelList just started a spark. So AngelList, which is so funny because they are the default for angel investing. Now, all of a sudden, they want in on this game and you can $15,000 spin up your own spark. You know, it's yeah, like... Yeah. So the, the the search the search funders always amuse me because you know they effectively come pre- predominantly through the kind of MBA channel. So yeah. you do your MBA. They really fund that. Yeah, yeah. So search funds are taught an MBA kind of strategy. Their professor tips a bit of cash in. You know they put a bit of cash in. The the the, ch- the challenges with with search funds are multiple because first of all the person actually doing all the work doesn't get much of the equity because they have to return a lot of the value to the partners that have put the money first. In. Yeah. So you become you come kind of you become kind of a busy fool as a search funder because you do all the yeah. work and the running around and everything. You take all the risk of pissing off your investors and you don't get much of the upside because you have to share most of it uh, back to them. And when you're dealing with these small to medium sized businesses, you know, the the flip is often six or early seven figures. Well if you're giving 80% of that away to someone, it's just a fucking salary. It's not a, it's not a yeah. life-changing capital event that you're creating. And the other problem is the NBA route basically teaches people best practice for due diligence and assessing companies. Well, small companies, let me tell you, are all a bit shit. <laughs> you yes. will not find <laughs> I've not had many of them, so yes. <laughs> yeah, you will not. I mean, look, uh, anyone that's been there and done it will, will understand that you know running a small business is a little bit of a juggling act between various different things. I often describe it as robbing Peter, but not always paying Paul. So you kind of have these businesses that just don't stand up to the kind of scrutiny that the search funder wants them to stand up to. Mm-hmm. And so they invariably just go around wasting a ton of people's time because they go and meet all these small businesses. They get them stuck in long, drawn-out due diligence processes that ultimately go nowhere. And they have this kind of analysis paralysis where they just just don't get the deal done. I would much rather take the Warren Buffett approach, which is price is my due diligence. 
and cover your downside on the way in to, to mitigate the risks that you inherently get when you get involved in a in a small business. So much better to focus on, you know, my very first business was buying and selling stuff on a market stall when I was 14 years old. And the expression in, in market trading was bought right is half sold. So the price going in is is half of the job. You know, selling it is is the other half. But actually getting in at the right price is, is most yeah. you know most of the work. And it's exactly like that, yeah. that with uh, with businesses. You need to be positioned right in the first place to be able to capture the upside uh, going through. That is a great analogy and kind of looking at it. And it is interesting because I think there is all of a sudden, yeah, as this is evolving out there, a lot of the concept of baby Berkshire, that's okay. becoming kind of common. There's people like that, you know, the permacapital approach, yep. you know, mix of acquisitions, investments, and just yep. seeding. In your program, do you, is there sort of a one direction or is it kind of no, so we we have we, yeah we we have fifteen different strategies, and and I must point out that the strategies that that I talk about through the Harvard Club are all ones that are tried and tried and tested by me over yeah. the last twenty years. So we use real case studies, real examples. It's not theoretical bullshit. It's actual tactical kind of on on the ground stuff. And in fact, one of them is pretty much the mini Berkshire Hathaway strategy. But we we flipped it on its head slightly again based on experience because. What looks great in a spreadsheet is putting these companies together, rinsing out load of synergies and sticking a manager in charge. In reality, it doesn't work. Small businesses, the, the value is created between the, you know, the, the, the culture that the owner has with its staff and its customers. And if you just take the owner out and try and homogenize everything, you lose that value, that inherent goodwill that you're trying mm-hmm. to pick up through acquiring that business. And so the traditional kind of rinse out the synergies, buy and build strategy doesn't actually work that well in owner-managed businesses. And I've tried it many, many times. And I'm sure there are people out there that can do this better than me. But my experience has been it's fraught with danger. And so, you know, we try and retain the entrepreneurs and give them a platform to grow their business rather than just buying them out and sending them off into the sunset with a pile of money that I now owe to the bank, which I don't see as being a terribly sustainable model. What what we find is you often want to retain that person that's doing the job of three people for the salary of half a person. Uh, yeah. You kind of want them to stick around through the through the process. Our version of the mini voucher Hathaway, if you like, is is um, founder driven rather than top down driven, and and I think that's yeah. where we win over quite a few of those strategies that are more built on a theoretical platform. And that is a lot of what attracted me to learning more about your program, because I do think there's something, you know, the way I look at it as someone who keeps taking swings at this, if I could have had helpful investors, let's just say, or even partners earlier in some of my things, I wouldn't have sold either way too early or on the downside after letting my ego get into play and other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, timing on exit. Is impossible to time. So yes. my 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 catchphrase is always the best time to sell your business is now, because all the reasons you can come up with to not sell your business now are probably the reasons the buyer wants to hear. Like it's going to be double the size next year, or wow. um, <laughs> I'm just about right. to win this yeah. contract. So in that situation, well, you just stick an earnout linked to that future performance. If you really think it's going to hit it out of the park, mm-hmm. you de-risk now, get your capital event now, and get a share of the upside if it does. Do what you expected to do next year, and and never underestimate the financial freedom a capital event gives you to be able to move on and become bigger and stronger. What do you see as the major impact of one event 
or process or you know, something on your own entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I, I would define my entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey as a series of epiphanies. And, you know, when I first started, it was start a business, work it up. Top. That's the only way to success, you know, and every book I read, that was how they became successful, right? Every seminar I go to, that's how they became successful. That's what I need to do. I need to start a business and I need to work harder than outwork everyone. That was the goal. And then I did that for a while. Then I, uh, and uh, with varying degrees of success and failure, and, and, you know, obviously fucked my first few businesses up, I think, as everybody yeah. does, and then uh, had one that was reasonably, uh, you know, re- reasonably functional, which happened to be in telecoms. And telecoms just at that time in the 1990s was booming because mobile phones were miniaturizing. Telecoms markets would be regulating around the world. Hundreds of thousands of people set up their own telecoms businesses. And then as, as often happens in a fragmented marketplace, it started to consolidate very quickly as well. Everyone started buying everybody else. So all of a sudden, I found myself in a position where I was speaking to people who were trying to buy my company every week. And yeah. the idea of an acquisition had never crossed my mind. I mean, literally, you know, I didn't have enough cash to pay my salaries at the end of the month, let alone go and buy a, yeah. uh, buy a business. So, you know, it just wasn't even on my radar. But what I realized is that what these people were uh, pitching to me basically was a kind of jam tomorrow type solution to some of my problems and a way that created a bigger entity. And, it, you know, the penny dropped that they didn't have any money either. You know, they they were probably in the same, you know, they, they made themselves sound better, but don't we all make ourselves sound better? So that was the first epiphany. And then, and then I basically switched sides of the table and went out looking for a company to buy. And we talked earlier about before we started this call about luck. And, yeah. you know, there, w- there was a degree of luck, I think, in finding that first opportunity because um, they had motivations that required them to do a deal. Now, they wanted money up front. I didn't have money up front. And I proposed a deal that didn't involve money up front. Had I had the money, I would have just given it to them. And I'd be sitting on this podcast saying, you can do deals. <laughs> they only need a little bit of money up front. You know? <laughs> but necessity, necessity is the mother of invention. And I had no money. It was pay my credit card bill or pay the staff. You know, there wasn't give this guy a chunk yeah. of money. And so I closed the deal without any money up front because he needed it to happen. And there weren't a queue of people with checkbooks waiting to, to buy the business. And that's also a key. There's not a queue of people out there with checkbooks waiting to buy these businesses. And we grew by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon. And that was a major epiphany for me, which is, you can stick another engine on the plane. You've got your organic stuff, your sales and your marketing. Uh, and then there's this other engine you can add, which is acquiring businesses to either give you product or they give you revenue or they give you talent. Sometimes acquiring a business just for yeah. people can be a great move. And it just opened my eyes to a whole new area. And in fact, opened it to such an extent that I went on a rampage and I bought 12 businesses in, in 18 months. We went from a million and a half revenue <laughs> to 13 and a half million revenue, went from 20 staff to 135 staff. To put it in perspective, before I did that first deal, I was trying to rustle up two and a half grand to give this guy as a sweetener to close the deal. And I couldn't lay my hands on 2,500 pounds at the time. 18 months later, my payroll is 250 grand a month. <laughs> so the, the shift, just the mental <laughs> shift in that short space of time was astonishing. The next epiphany was I sold one of the companies. When I had the company, it was 12 companies, 13 and a half million of revenue. I was paying myself a really decent sum of money every month. I was living in a really nice uh, house that I'd bought. I was driving a very nice sports car. All, all the things that were important to a 20 something your old yeah. uh, guy, um, um, but but I didn't have any wealth. I didn't create any wealth. There really wasn't any, you know, 
significant savings or capital or anything like that. I then sold the business. And that was the next major epiphany because the reason I hadn't sold it before is I was always waiting for it to be this 50 million, 100 million deal. You know, this is what I saw as being an exit, not some, you know, couple of million uh, type of uh, situation. But what I realized is when you do sell a company, A, you create a capital event. And, you know, I, I always have this tagline that you don't make money running businesses, you make money when you sell them. So you want to be kind of selling often and creating these capital events often. And the game changer for me, because in my mind, it's like, well, I can't survive the rest of my life on two million uh, pounds, you know. And but, but what I've missed is that's not the deal. The deal is you get all your time back and don't underestimate how much time you get back. The other thing is that two million correctly deployed can create quite a significant passive income to the point where you don't need to actually do anything to cover all of your day-to-day uh, expenses. And if you don't need to do anything to cover all of your day-to-day expenses, you have the ultimate in financial freedom. You take much better decisions. If a deal is taking six months instead of three months, you're not going to starve. You know, you, It just puts you in that much, much stronger position to go out and attack the world. And so that first little bit is just a massive platform to grow exponentially. And, and that was the that was kind of the, the next big epiphany. And then the next big epiphany was probably private wealth banking. And, pri- and the journey for private wealth banking has literally um, 10x my wealth, probably six or seven years. There was a really long stretch until you know that kind of first exit. Uh, that was probably yeah. a 10-year journey or, or 10 years plus journey. And then there was a, a shorter space of time to buying and selling businesses and creating regular capital events. And then there's the, the private wealth banking experience, which is which, which you know just takes everything to uh, to another level. So it's been a series of epiphanies for me. So when you talk about, and this is I think something interesting also from a lot of we just had um, Mike Boyd who runs the uh, Business Family yep. podcast about creating family businesses and stuff and talks. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. So when you talk about private wealth banking, are you meaning you're investing then in these? the private, you know, things, or are you talking about no, then having the capital it, to give, to yeah, invest no, it, into it, private? No, do you know what? I never invest in small businesses. I, I really should, yeah. but um, yeah. you know, no. the only way I do it is through my own agglomerations. But but no, private private wealth banking is banking for rich people. And you would not believe how unfair it is to everybody else. So yeah. when you're an ultra high net, when you're an ultra high net worth individual, you get access to private wealth banking. And, and this is why I think most wealth gurus that you hear talking about this stuff aren't actually wealthy because nobody yes. talks about private wealth banking. And if yes. they if they were an ultra high net worth, they would have been invited to have a private wealth bank account by now. They would be telling you, fuck, this stuff is crazy. I'll give you a couple of uh, just yeah. really super simple examples. If you want a property in one of the prime locations, Saint-Tropez, Monaco, uh, Switzerland, Bay. something yeah. like that. Yeah. They will give you a hundred percent mortgage uh, on that property at less than one percent interest, with no capital repayment on on the mortgage at all. So, pure interest only mortgage, and that works for a number of reasons because you simply pay the uh, you know pay the interest fee. If you're in a country that has a wealth tax, you can offset the mortgage against the wealth tax, so it, it, uh, it's a tax mitigation strategy. And of course, you have the appreciation of the property in those locations that you capture all of, you know, whilst uh, the debt sits there. The other thing is you've got access to products that you just can't uh, access as a private mm-hmm. investor. So, for example, it, yeah. all, of the mu- all of the mutual funds that you can invest in, you know, Warren Buffett always says, don't buy mutual funds, just buy index funds because of the fees. 
Well, actually, if you buy the institutional version of that same fund, then you have the same fee structure as an ETF. So you're going to manage the fund, but with very low fees. So what happens is when you know Schroders launch a new fund, they have an institutional offering first, which gets filled up by all those institutions we talked about earlier, plus private clients like me, um, which has a very low fee structure. They then have one for the rest of the world, which has a really high fee structure associated with it, which actually pays for the people and the managers' um, massive salaries and stuff. So you get access to these funds at a much, much lower cost. You also get Lombard lending, which is the ability to pull money down against your portfolio. Yeah. In my case, it's about 0.7% a year. You can use that for anything that's, and it's not secured by the bank. You can go and spend it on a yacht or on a car or whatever, or you can put it back into more investments. So you can draw money down at 0.7% a year and, for example, provide, you know, property bridging finance, which pays you a couple of percent a month. So you're borrowing at 0.7% a year. You've got 2% a month coming in secured by uh, real estate. So. There's all sorts of things like that that you can do within the private world banking arena that you just can't do with a regular retail bank. And it just it, it just means that you have this opportunity to snowball all of your wealth. Once you've invested in stocks and bonds and traditional assets with the private world bank, you never have to sell something to get cash out. The bank will give you cash for whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah, that's the game changer. Whereas before... It was kind of like you have your portfolio, but then you see something you like and you have to sell some of it to go and buy the thing that you like. You always have that headwind of expenditure. Well, and I know to a certain degree, the concept is if you have to ask, you don't have enough. But about what Mm. time in your growth, because this is something I think a lot of us in the great appreciation that's, you know, yes, this is a great resignation going on, but a lot of us have had asset appreciation unfathomable in the past couple of years. When did you start getting about yeah, you know, I don't. You know. Well, so the 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 rules generally. Um, so for for the private banks, I mean, like Julius Fair is who I bank with, for example. And if you yeah. go onto the Julius Fair website and stick my name, there's a little video about me on on there and stuff. So uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm a good I'm a good client of theirs, and they're the they're the largest Swiss private bank. There are there's UBS and Credit Suisse. They're more yeah. um, investment banks rather than pure private banks, although they have private banking aspects. But Julius Fair is the largest Swiss private bank. Their criteria is 10 million net worth, 3 million cash. And that's like a very, very much a starting level. And they're quite discriminatory as well, because if they think it's only going to be reason, yeah. 3 million, then they won't bother. They, they want to see the portfolio grow into a 20, 30 million plus over time. But, you know, 3 million of cash is, it's, it's a decent deal. So you need to get a decent deal under your belt, a decent capital event. And that's your stepping stone, the first step on that ladder um, into the private banking space. Nice. No, I like that. I mean, very, it's an aspirational, but for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's the whole point of what we're doing and Ooh. having that as part of our journey, because too often we think of it as this one way, start something, either fail or pull a Zuckerberg. But the reality is yeah, yeah. You know, most of us have <laughs> pretty curving entities. Exactly. And I, I think that's the lesson I'd like to have learned sooner. Um, which is to get that first exit. Uh, to be honest, even if, if even if you sell it in two, three years for half a million, that half a million creates enough passive income. There are enough things you can do to generate, you know, fifteen to twenty percent return yeah. on that money reasonably passively. Not please don't put it into a, a business acquisition, but yeah, in in more traditional assets that can give you that sort of return, which is enough to keep the lights on and keep you fed while you go and do something really meaningful and uh, and, and big scale. All right. Well, what's something now that you're finding, and we kind of chatted a little bit before we started the recording, 
What are you finding interesting? Because usually I ask, what are you finding something that's going to have a huge impact? But you had a, you had a pretty good point of view of what's happening around this space right now. What are you finding mm. interesting that's going on? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing we were talking about, so look, my, I, I started the Harbour Club not because actually to be an anti-seminar. So uh, one of the M&A deals I did many, many years ago was a seminar business. I hated the way it fundamentally wasted entrepreneurs' time because entrepreneurs, you know, time is our most valuable yes. asset. You go on a three-day three seminar, the first day is how fucking great the second day is going to be. The second day is like a little bit of detail, but not what you thought you were going to get in the next three days. And the, and the last one is the upsell, right? Do the gold, platinum, diamond mentorship, blah, 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 blah. And, and uh, I just found that infuriating, you know, as an entrepreneur to not get what you thought you were going to get and just to be constantly sold to and sold to and sold to. But at the same time, I was starting to get a name for myself in acquiring companies, typically because I would buy people's competitors for, for nothing. And they'd be really pissed off. They didn't have the opportunity to buy that competitor themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for a dollar down. And so these people were approaching me all the time to ask me to do consulting or become a non-exec for them or stuff. And I, you know, I'd rather put a gun in my mouth. I couldn't think of any good reason why I would want to go and do that. And then when I bought this seminar company, I thought, ah, actually, maybe education is the answer. So instead of them hiring me, I'll teach them. And then if they go off and be successful, I can be proud of them instead of jealous of them. And yeah. uh, and it'll be a nice mutually beneficial sort of relationship. But if I'm going to do a seminar, I can't. it's got to be nothing like any of these others. So no upsells, give them bags and bags of content in a really short space of time, make everything action orientated. So it's all about them taking action to get results because Certainly, ultimately... Yeah. You know, le learning is just learning. You can read books about most topics. You can read books about playing tennis. It's not going to prepare you to get on a court and actually yeah. play tennis. So, you know, experience is where you're really going to learn this, not, you know, not from the course. But we have some invaluable things to share with people because there's a lot of things that seem logical that don't work in business. And there's a lot of things that um, do work that don't seem logical. And so walking people through you know, our own direct experiences of those particular things, we think could be really, really helpful because it stops people bumping their heads in the in the same places. Plus, we've got, you know, a couple of thousand members that are rigorously testing all of these things. And obviously, the landscape keeps changing. Yeah, so within the community, there are people posting videos constantly about new LinkedIn packages that work or new ways of approaching people or automation tools that have come out that do certain things that can help people uh, be more successful. So. The way we've structured it, and it's evolved a lot since the very first course back in uh, 2009, but it's a membership community. We have our own app. We have, like I say, a couple of thousand active people all over the world. So you now, you know, when you join, you have business partners in Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia, UK, the US, all across Europe, Canada. If you need a partner in Paris, you can quickly find a partner in Paris to partner up on a deal that you've stumbled across or any state in the US or, or anywhere that... Uh, you might think of so it's a great community from that perspective you also have you know loads of different industrial industrial expertise within there so that solves a lot of problems so basically they have like a pre-course to kind of get them warmed up to all of the concepts then there's a three-day really aggressive brain dump of information and then there's a 12-week kind of um follow-up mentoring mastermind type thing with somebody that's got some experience of doing deals to, okay. to take them through yeah, right. those first action points and of course, all of that time, they're in the community as well within the app. So they can ask questions, they can do stuff. Every Harbour Club gets my WhatsApp number as well. So I actually answer questions personally directly to all of the community members. 
There is nothing else they can buy from us. There is only one ticket. We make the ticket a discriminatory. It's not expensive compared to other programs, but we we do have a price that's high enough to discriminate by members. We want people that perhaps already have a successful business or have already created a little bit of uh, financial success for themselves because that keeps the membership a high-value community, effectively, of people. And that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's the, it's the, it's the anti-seminar. It's interesting, especially with what's happened over the past 18 months of COVID, companies that were so focused on just the seminar and the rinse and repeat and the seminar in person had to Mm -hmm. adapt. And I've talked to some people, some have had great difficulties and I know a few seminar places that are up for sale. Some have found that the community aspect has actually increased their value and they're Mm -hmm. seeing higher engagement because of that. It's like, oh, we never really thought, you know, other than the ad hoc discussion that having this community would be such a big thing. And all of a sudden it's become richer. So are your seminars in person or do you have virtual or? It's, it's virtual but live. Yeah. I'm involved in all the Q&As with people live and we go yeah. through everything, but we do it virtually. And then we have uh, deal fest events, which are live where everybody can get together and network and, and meet each other. Yeah. But they're, they're more case study driven. So we get a load of people on stage to just oh, run like through that, yeah. cases. And when somebody joins the community, they get one deal fest kind of uh, ticket so they can come along to a few, any future nice. deal fest they like. So they can come straight after the event or they can leave it until they've done a deal or after a year or whatever they fancy and then come along to one of those. Uh, okay. so I, li- I, li- I like that concept. So how often do you start this up? You know, I, I guess starting is the right term. Yeah. So we, yeah, so we do three different time zones. We do an Asia time zone, a European time zone and a North American uh, time zone. And uh, we tend to run one of each time zone pretty much every month or two. So, you know, if you wanted to do a US one, there's going to be one in the next three or four months, probably. So. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners are, you know, given that I'm in America, even though I'm living in Spain, we're about 70% US, but we do have a good amount of English speaking Europeans, or as I like to say, yeah, we're yeah. expats. You know, I seem to <laughs> talk with more Irish tax, you know, attorneys here in Betamanana than I do you know, Spaniards at times. So it's like, yeah, yeah. Scottish IT guy, you know, sold multiple companies. It's like, okay, what are we all doing here? We're yeah. enjoying the sun. I like that concept. And, you know, I think, as I mentioned, I am, I am going to join because this is some of the things you've talked about. Well, as you jokingly said, your content writers have created in your news are very interesting because as someone who has, I haven't had as good luck selling my businesses. I jokingly said my very first business I sold at for a million dollars of paper when I was 24 to only have, and to gave them, I made every mistake because I didn't talk to anyone. I just was like, yes. And yeah, they took my cash and they went bankrupt within three and a half months. <laughs> so that was, wow. fun. you know, been this ongoing learning, but I really do like how you talk about leveraging the ability to help improve companies and all this stuff. So it is an interesting approach that I don't think I'm hearing as much out there. Um, yeah, it's a little, the, the, the mar- yeah, the market is a little bit saturated at the moment with, with the blind leading the blind when it comes to yes. this kind of stuff. So a, a bunch of people that haven't done deals trying to teach people how to do deals. And like I say, there's a lot of things that seem logical that in, in practice don't actually work. And they can be quite painful lessons sometimes when you, uh, when you go through them. So, you know, I would, I would always just encourage people, and look, this is, this goes for everything in life, but do a little bit of due diligence, you know, have a little bit of a poke around into the background of the person before you give them 
some money. I mean, you know, just a great example is if they've written books, go back to, because the latest book they will have written will be about how they're an amazing 20-year M&A veteran. Yeah. Um, perhaps, go read, perhaps go read the book they wrote four years ago or the book they wrote five years <laughs> ago and, and read the bio, yeah, because the bio will be them selling a seminar on something completely different because the seminar industry is like that. They move on to the thing that they can get the most clicks for when they do their Facebook campaign or their Google campaign or whatever it is they're using to promote their business. These guys are experts in marketing, they're digital marketeers, and the product they sell you is is not that, you know, is less relevant than the marketing. If I want to be really cynical about this, the Federal Trade Commission just clamped down on a whole bunch of the seminar operators who are in the um, uh, consumer space, because when you sell to consumers, there's a whole bunch of rules around selling to consumers. Well, by selling and buying a business course, they can argue that this is a business proposition and therefore more mm-hmm. sophisticated. And so they get less. You still have the Federal Trade Commission. You still have to deal with that. But it's mu- much less scrutiny when it's considered to be business to business. And you get away. You know, there's not so much litigation around unfair contracts and things like that. So a whole bunch of them have dived into this space all at the same time. And funnily enough, they all have very, very similar bios to me. Um, I don't know if they've copied me or, or, or what, but they all seem to be 20, 20 years with 100 deals, with 15 deal structures. With, you know, you, you re, you're like, fuck me, that's Jeremy. <laughs> um, but just do a little bit of due diligence, 10, 10 minutes of poking around on Google, and you'll very quickly see the ones that are real and the ones that are not real. It's, it, it stands out. Yeah, and $5,000 content site flips are slightly different well then. <laughs> and, and and also of course look out for the you know uh it was 200 dollars. now it's only 19.99 to learn all of this stuff because you know that's just to get your attention to sell you something for 12 grand <laughs> we do try and keep it a little bit more of people you know outside of some of those lovely uh, i know it's not all click funnels but i do kind of jokingly call it the click funnels crowd and I'm sorry, ClickFunnels, yeah. but sometimes your people tend to be a little bit, <laughs> let's get the deal done as quickly. So besides applying to the Harbor Club, what are some other ways that people can engage with you? You know, Yeah, so, look, this, this, so this is one of the big challenges we always had. This is a big, complex uh, topic. And, yeah. uh, and, and it's kind of hard to know, is this something you want to do or is this not something you want to do? So we, we've created a kind of a polarizing process, I guess you could call it, which is Mm -hmm. we have a a 21-day completely free email thing that you can go through. I don't know if you've done this or not, but um, you get an an email every day for 21 days. And by the end of that, basically, you'll know if this is for you or not. It'll either scare the crap out of you and you'll think, I just can't see myself doing it. Or you'll you'll go, fuck, where do I sign? You know, uh, you can reach out to to my team at the Harbour Club. So if you just go to harbourclubevents.com, John Hartley on that team, he will just get you connected to that straight away. Also, if you buy my book, Go Do Deals, um, which which is quite a good uh, resource for this kind of stuff. If you buy it on our website, and on our website is godo.deals. And if you buy the the hard copy from there, you get the 21-day thing automatically. But you can get the 21-day thing without buying the book. You just have to reach out to our team and they'll, they'll set you up on it. Um, but yeah, you get an email every day. Like I said, it takes you through sourcing. It takes you through how you actually do a deal with them. Um, it takes you through, you know, a couple of different processes from our repertoire of, of processes. You get some turnaround tactics that you can use to add value to the, to the business. You get some exit tips. And then we actually do touch on some of the private wealth stuff as well, just to give people a taster of what's at the other end of the, 
of the process. So um, yeah, it's really good to walk through everything. I like that. And we'll put a link to everything down the show notes and put it on the social media for everyone. I'm definitely going to start with the 21, but I'm very, very interested and I will. And you know, I hope you don't mind, but I will talk about my experience in going through the 21. And then, you know, if I get accepted into your you know, community about right. you know, what that process is like, because as yeah, I said, yeah. I do feel you have a very different voice that I'm seeing and one that I think is more attuned towards what we talk about is that mid-journey entrepreneur. You have the skills, you have some capital, but you know, it's like how to be smarter, not just work harder. So yeah, I'm absolutely. definitely excited. And, and, yeah, and look, this is uh, this is one of those spaces, like I say, it's not for everybody. You know, some people, often people have said to me, you're not a real entrepreneur. You're not creating, you know, you're not creating a product. You're not, uh, right. you know, you're, you're not going out and solving problems in the, in the traditional way. And uh, and look, I can I can see that side of the of the criticism, but I see I do see this as an entrepreneurial expression because it's ultimately what entrepreneurs do is creative problem solving, and this is the creative problem you know of how do I meet this person's needs and my person's needs and come up with a win win structure yeah. that gets them out of their business and gets me into their business and allows me to go on and create you know shareholder value. So. It's uh, it's a really interesting space. I really feel that juice is worth the squeeze. You know, I think um, I think the only way to build wealth, yeah, I think the only way to build wealth is through creating capital events. And if you don't have any capital to start with, so you can't buy a real, you know, do a real estate deal or something like that, for example, then entrepreneurship is the is kind of the only one left for you. And so, you know, I think um, it, it's a great example of creating something from nothing, which I think is the ultimate in entrepreneurship, really. Well, I look forward to diving into it. And I know the audience will probably have a lot of questions, but, you know, diving into the 21 day course. So Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate this. This has been a lot of fun. And this is something, you know, because it's such a passion of mine, you know, to have you on after reading so much of your stuff has been great. So Jeremy, thank you again. Looking forward to learning more. I like that interview a lot. I always love it when I am able to have someone on the show that I'm researching their own material. I've been looking to join the Harbor Club for a while. And in reading about him, listening you know, to past interviews he's done, some of the videos he provides, etc., you know, his charm and his intelligence has come through. It was great to actually have him here on the show and just realize how deep that is. He's in a space, he's been in the space before <laughs> all the noise from 2009 on. And yes, as he kind of says, there's a lot of Johnny come lately's, but his take on this is so much realer than, hey, no money down. The focus on creating value in the equation. Yes, it's a very specific type of company, which is really great because that niche, that focus on who he's buying from is really important. But that realization that he's trying to create this deal that wins for them, understanding their needs, the empathy and the deal structure. That's something I know I want to learn more from. And I think entrepreneurs that are looking to expand by acquiring, that's something I think we all can learn from. Too. So please, we're going to have the link to his book down below, The Harbor Club also. Go check them out. I mean, look, 
This may not be the process you're doing. You may not be looking to acquire his style of companies or use that process, but there's definitely a lot to steal from him. And I think we should all take a deeper dive into what he's doing. He's been in this a lot longer than a lot of people who are out there talking about the space. So please go check out his stuff below. You're really going to learn a lot. Also, if you enjoy the show, if you learn something, if you think there's someone you know out there who could learn from today's episode, please share it with them. We greatly appreciate it. You know, we love when new people get to hear the show and learn from our guests because there's so many great entrepreneurs out there who we hope we can bring on the show and learn more from also. So please share with someone you think will get something from this. Join us on the social channels below. Let us know what you liked about the show, things you want to learn more about, things you don't like that we're doing. Please just let us know. Join our newsletter. We'll keep you abreast of what's going on. So as always, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you have a wonderful day and I can't wait to talk to you again. Goodbye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.